Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new to our ministry, we're glad that you're here. Uh, please leave a comment below to let us know that you were with us. Now, right now we're in a series called, Is God Racist? And we've considered various forms of discrimination and injustice and how the Bible confronts them. Today's message looks at a reform movement. In fact, it was the most widespread and significant renewal in Israel's history. And yet, God's response to it wasn't what we might expect. It shows us the limits of human reform and the solutions that God provides. Now, many people have drawn parallels between the situation in our world today and the events of 1968. That was a year marked by many protests and calls to reform. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April of that year just stirred up civil rights protests across the United States and around the world. But there were also demonstrations for gender equality, women's rights, and the war in Vietnam. And on top of all that, it was an election year in the U.S., and so tensions were at an all-time high. This year is also an election year in the U.S., and it's hard to avoid news about it. Uh, protests about racial e e equality seem louder than ever. And the impact of the Me Too movement and the dem demonstrations to end sexual exploitation are still being felt. God has created us with a sense of justice that's ultimately rooted in his character. And so when we see things that violate that sense of justice, we rightly react. We want change. Even if you're not a, a protester or an activist, every one of us is seeking to reform, uh, seeking to reform injustice at some level of our lives. Uh, we try to reform our society every time we vote. Uh, we try to reform our children every time we deal with their sin. Uh, we try to reform our workplace when we enact new policies. And we all long for a more just world, but we're often left frustrated with what we see. Today's passage helps us to make sense of some of those feelings and helps us to know what to do with them. It gives God's perspective on the greatest reform movement in Israel's history. And it gives us some insight into what God may be doing when we find ourselves longing for justice. Now, to understand this message, you'll want to have your Bible open in front of you to the book of Zephaniah. If you don't have a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to pause the video at this point and go get one. Now, my guess is that most of you have never heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah. And frankly, I don't know when we'll get back to it. So I'm going to try and give you the whole thing in one sitting. So hold on to your hats as we go through it. I'll start at the beginning, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, most people's eyes glaze over when you read more than two or three names in a row from the Bible. But the only name in this verse that you need to notice for the time being is the king's name. We're told that the message of this book was delivered in the days of Josiah, the king of Judah. Now, some of you will remember a series entitled Revival that we did on the life of King Josiah. He was a leader who brought amazing reforms. He set an incredible example of integrity for the nation. He repaired the temple and restored the worship of the true God. 
In his day, the scriptures were rediscovered and Josiah led the people in repentance and covenant renewal. There were profound sweeping changes across the nation. It would have felt a little like a prime minister had just been elected with an agenda and a mandate that seemed to have fallen straight out of heaven. It would have felt as if you'd been in a church that was marked by decades of corruption and scandal and a disregard for the Bible. And all of a sudden, revival had come to the elders. The preaching was transformed and sin was being addressed at all levels. There'd be a sense of excitement, expectation. But what do you think God might say? You'd expect a word of encouragement, right? <laughs> Way to go, team! Something like that. You probably wouldn't expect what came in verse 2. Take a look for yourself. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. It's a terrible warning of total devastation. And it continues for the entire chapter. What's that all about? Why doesn't God just applaud the reforms? Well, one of the reasons seems to be that human reforms are never embraced thoroughly enough. Even with a great leader whose heart is in the right place, there will always be people who resist. Human reforms are never em embraced thoroughly enough. So, for instance, God indicts people with divided loyalties. In verse 5, he talks of those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. There were people who were worshiping God, but also praying to the stars and looking to the God of the Ammonites. Josiah tried to bring an end to this kind of syncretism, but there were people who resisted. And it's the same today. Some of you will hear the word of God on Sunday, but check your astrology on Monday, read your self-help book on Tuesday, and check in with a prosperity teacher on YouTube on Wednesday, and so on right through the week. God says, make a decision. Decide who you're going to follow. Now, there were also people who ignored God altogether. It wasn't just that they mixed true faith with false religion, but they just stopped making time for God completely. In verse 6, it speaks of those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. These are like people who grew up in the church, but somewhere along the line, they just stopped bothering with God. These are the people who saw God as just one activity in an already full life. Eventually, they let other things crowd them out. Some of you have heard that the latest Barna research shows that since the pandemic began, one in three practicing Christians have stopped attending church altogether, whether in person or online. Zephaniah warns that ignoring God brings consequences. And it's those consequences that other people ignored. In verse 12, God says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. People are complacent. They figure they can do what they want, and God can't say or do anything about it either way. And the amazing thing is, this was the condition of people's hearts during the greatest revival in Israel's history. 
And it shows that human reforms are never embraced thoroughly enough. There will always be people who resist the good and positive changes that people seek to make. And we need to recognize that could be you. That could be me right now. Maybe, though, for some of them, there was even a false sense of security that came with the reforms. Maybe they thought, with all of this repentance going on, surely God won't notice what I'm doing. Now, if Zephaniah chapter 1 tells us that human reforms are never embraced thoroughly enough, chapter 2 makes it clear they never reach far enough. King Josiah was a remarkable leader, and he was a godly man. But his concern was for reform in Israel. That was the extent of his authority and his influence. But as we've seen throughout this series, God's plan has always been global. His vision is international. So starting in chapter 2, verse 4, God addresses each one of Israel's neighbors, and he vows to confront them for their injustice. So in verse 5, for instance, it says, The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you. Then in verse 9, he says, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits. The warnings of judgment continue. So in verse 12, it's, this time it's against Cush. And it says, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And finally, the nation that conquered the ten northern tribes is addressed. In verse 13, it says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Now, we tend to get worked up about local corruption, national injustice, and that's good and important. But God's passion for reform extends beyond that. He sees the injustice in our backyard at the same time he sees it on the other side of the planet. And he warns that judgment is coming because human reforms never reach far enough. Finally, in chapter 3, we get the first mention of hope. But even then, it shows us the limitations of human reforms. Not only are human reforms never embraced thoroughly enough, nor do they reach far enough, but they also never go deep enough. We can make laws and policies to try and curb people's outward behavior, but it's hard to accomplish anything beyond that. Only God can bring the deeper reforms that our world really needs. And the good news is, he will bring them. Uh, listen as I read from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Now, it starts in verse 9 by describing how God changes the speech of the people. But it literally says he makes their lips pure. You can create laws to police the ugly things people say, but only God can give a person pure lips. And a person's speech is a reflection of their heart. So if the speech has been made pure, then the heart has been transformed. It reminds us of when the prophet Isaiah had a vision of the Lord, and the seraphim 
touched, the lip, touched his lips with a burning coal, took away his guilt. But here it's not describing God purifying the lips of a famous prophet. He's cleansing the lips of the peoples. Peoples of all nations are included. And he purifies them that they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. One accord here is literally shoulder to shoulder. Only God's work in people's lives can create a deep unity centered in prayer and worship. You can mandate that everyone recite the Lord's Prayer in public schools like they did when I was a child. But unless God transforms the heart, the reforms have only limited effect. Now, in verse 11, God promises to wipe their slate clean. He says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Human reform seldom offer forgiveness. Today, if you're seen to have broken the society's norms, you get canceled. People who are deemed guilty of injustice are shamed and excluded. And often there's no way back. There's no redemption or forgiveness. But God's reforms are different. Because God can purify us, he can also take away our shame. In verse 10, it says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. It's a strange choice of words. Who are these people? It's describing that African kingdom of Cush that we've seen coming up throughout this series, but who are these people God calls my worshipers? And why does he call them the daughter of my dispersed ones? Likely the reference is to the scattering of people at the Tower of Babel. They're the descendants of those who joined together with the rest of humanity in seeking to make a name for themselves and control God and his blessings. But God now has made them worshipers and united them as part of his people. It's interesting that the prophet singles out this African kingdom. He had warned of its judgment along with all of Israel's other neighbors in the preceding chapter. But here it's the only one mentioned, probably as representative of all the others because it was the farthest away. It sent the message that if God could bring worshipers from as far away as Africa, then the blessing of Abraham will surely reach all the nations. Now, there's probably another reason that Zephaniah singles out Cush, though. Did anyone catch Zephaniah's genealogy when I read it? <laughs> Did anyone care? <laughs> Verse 1 reads, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. And as you might guess, Cushi just means Cushite, a person from Cush. Many scholars believe that either Zephaniah's father or one of his grandparents was from Cush, and he was both an example of and a proclaimer of God's inclusion of that African nation and all the peoples of the earth. He's another example of how inclusive Israel was. It was a multi-ethnic movement that drew people to God. Now, so far, the message of Zephaniah has been that even the best of human reforms are never enough because they're never embraced thoroughly enough. They don't reach far enough and they can't go deep enough. And so God will bring his own judgment. At the same time, he's also seeking to purify worshipers from all nations. He's unifying a multi-ethnic movement of people who will serve him shoulder to shoulder without shame. But where does that leave us? Should we even care about reforming the injustice we see? 
Does it matter who we vote for? Should we try and stop racism, inequality, and injustice? Should we even bother to deal with the sin that we see in our own children? King Josiah would tell us that the answer to all of those questions is yes. While even the best human reforms are limited in their effect, Josiah was at least able to delay God's judgment in his lifetime. He worked to reform the behavior of a nation, and he pointed many to the transformation that only God can bring in a person's heart. We do well to imitate him. Now, the book of Zephaniah is mostly about what God will do. It's about the judgment he'll bring and the people he'll purify and save. But there are three key appeals to seek, wait, and sing. So let's briefly look at each of them before we close. Now, the first comes in the beginning of chapter 2. It tells us to seek. After calling the nation together before his judgment comes, he says in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. We're to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, and to seek humility. The politician you elect or the leader you follow can't ultimately do what you most need. You need the Lord. Only God's intervention in your life can save you. Only he can deliver you from the judgment to come. Now, there's also a call to righteousness. It, it's easy to confuse ministry with righteousness. We can confuse activism with righteousness. We can get caught up trying to change the sin in others and fail to confront the sin in our own hearts. And we can get more focused on trying to make our kids listen and share than we do on reflecting the righteousness of God in ourselves. We're to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, but also to see, seek humility. Without humility, we overestimate our own righteousness and underestimate others. Without humility, we think too much of what we can accomplish and too little of what God can do. And without humility, we get more enthusiastic about our own ideas and less convinced about God's wisdom. We need to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, and to seek humility. Now, after telling us to seek in the beginning of chapter 2, we're called to wait in chapter 3, verse 8. After describing the judgment that he's going to bring both on Israel and the nations for the better part of two chapters, he says this, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. What's God telling them to wait for? The command to wait doesn't mean, hold off on what you're doing. God wasn't telling Josiah to delay his reforms or put them off to another day. You're trying too hard. No. The call to wait is to realize that the fulfillment for all of our longings for justice in this world can only come from God. As we do all that we can do, whether for our community, our church, or our family, we will ultimately find that the best of what we can do still isn't enough. And it would drive us crazy, it would drive us to despair if we didn't realize that God will write the final chapter. And so we need to wait for him to do that. He'll judge this world's corruption thoroughly and completely, and he'll purify people of all nations and backgrounds who seek him in righteousness and humility. 
God's call to wait for him helps, helps me to live in light of the ending that he alone can bring. Are you waiting for him? Now, after urging us to seek and to wait, the final invitation is for us to sing. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, we don't sing here because we're on the right side or because our politician won. We don't sing because of the points we scored in a skirmish against injustice or in our accomplishments as parents. We sing because of what God has promised us. We sing because he's a God who purifies sinners. We sing because he's a God who takes away our shame. We sing because of God's internationalist hope. And we sing because God sings over his children. Despite the book of Zephaniah containing some of the most chilling depictions of God's terrible judgment, it also contains the most tender descriptions of his compassionate love. If you know one verse from this book, it's probably chapter 3, verse 17. That's the verse that says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How could a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? How could someone who sees sin more clearly than any of us ever could still rejoice over us with gladness? Knowing our history, knowing our failures, knowing our weakness, how could he still quiet us by his love and exult over us with loud singing? And how could he purify a people who were deserving of judgment? Zephaniah doesn't answer those questions. There are hints and clues, but the answers wouldn't come until God himself entered into this world. It was only as Jesus traded place with condemned sinners on the cross that we could see how this love was possible. It was only as Jesus experienced the wrath of God that we deserved that we could see how we might receive the rejoicing with gladness and loud singing kind of love of God as a free gift. And it's only that love that can truly reform us and ultimately transform us. Now, if you're still trusting in your own personal reform project to earn your acceptance with God and a place in heaven, listen to the warning of Zephaniah. Only through faith in the one who took the judgment of God in our place can we ex experience the love, acceptance, and purifying grace that we most need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of justice. We thank you that you see the sin and corruption of our world more clearly than we could ever see it ourselves. We praise you that you are the God who will indeed write the final chapter. Your judgment will come and it will be complete. But in your mercy, through the cross of Christ, you will purify a people for yourself. And so, Father, we seek you. We seek you as our saviors. We seek you as the one that we most need. We come before you pursuing righteousness and humility. 
and we ask that you would continue that work in our hearts. We wait on you, knowing that the satisfaction that we long for won't fully come in this lifetime, but it will come. And finally, Father, we sing. We sing because, what, because of what Jesus has done in our lives. We sing because of your forgiveness and your cleansing. And we sing because you're a God who sings over us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope today's message has helped you to see that human reforms are never enough. We ultimately need what only God can give. He calls us to seek him in righteousness and humility. He calls us to wait for the final ending that he'll bring. And he invites us to sing because he's the God who sings loudly over his children. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.